Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today. I think it's the summer when I was 14, my family introduced me to a plastic surgeon uh, who's Lebanese, uh, Dr. Kamil Abu Dahir. I still remember that day, he picked me up at 6 a.m. in his car and we drove down to Saida and we did this case together. I mean, I obviously observed, but he did this case and I was hooked. I told my mom, I remember sitting in the living room with her saying, I'm going to become a reconstructive surgeon. Welcome to Conversations with Lulu. My name is Lulu Khazan, an entrepreneur living in Dubai, an investor, a mother, and your host. My guest is Dr. Nadine Hashash Haram, a Lebanese reconstructive plastic surgeon and entrepreneur dialing in from London, where she lives with her husband and three kids. Over the course of her career, Nadine spent a lot of time traveling around the world to offer her services to people in need and became increasingly concerned with the lack of access to safe and quality surgeries. This journey eventually led her to launch Proximy in 2016. Proximy is an augmented reality platform allowing surgeons to remotely guide local clinicians through complex procedures in real time. A truly remarkable use of technology. Nadine was born in California to a diverse family. Her grandmother was Spanish but lived in Lebanon, Her mother was born in West Africa. In the early 90s, her family chose to move back from California to post-war Beirut. I think it's one of the best things my parents ever did, to be honest, because it really um, exposed us to the world outside that kind of Western world, where you see a lot of the challenges that you might have in different environments. You know, on so many levels, like on a on a family and on a connection level was really important. You know, I was able to build very strong connections with family that otherwise would not have been possible. For every, you know, all the success I have today is largely because I've had a fantastic foundation of family and support. Also, you're in an environment that is not straightforward, right? For those who lived in Beirut in the 90s, there's a lot of different challenges at the time. You're just coming into an environment that's trying to normalize after a difficult war. And so, I lived that. And so I think that taught me a lot about kind of how to be street smart, how to like work your way through a difficult situation. There's no easy answer. There's no easy route. And that kind of grit and perseverance definitely stemmed from that time. Since those days in Lebanon, Nadine has grown considerably in both her personal and professional life. And I wanted to get her views on leadership, specifically if leaders are born or can be bred. It's like genes or like, you know, at a sort of cellular level, and I'm going to my biochemistry now, but Please do. Certain, you have a genetic makeup and certain things may be expressed or influenced by external factors and some things may be repressed. And so I think there's an element that you may have that born in you, but ultimately I think it's the environment that you live in, uh, the experiences that are thrown at you either by choice or not choice that will influence um, the leader that you become. But there is no manual. I know there's a lot of books out there about leadership and there's, you know, we aspire to great leaders, but I don't think there's a, there's an actual, you know, this is what a good leader looks like. And this is a checklist. And ultimately, you know, your job as a leader is to help empower others to get to the goal, that North star, if we're all leading towards this North star, how are we going to get there? 
How you determine that goalpost and then get your team to it can define you as a leader. For Nadine, the operative environment became her testing ground. A surgeon may be in charge of the patient, but they have to get everyone to work together to deliver a positive outcome. I think what we're trying to demonstrate these days about surgeons, despite the fact that there'll be other members of the team there, whether it's scrub nurses or juniors or the anesthetic team, ultimately it's your call and, and that patient's um, you know, outcome is, is on you. But I think also it's important when you're in those environments, knowing what each person's strength is, whether it's the anesthetic team, making sure that the patient's safe and stable, whether it's the scrub nurse. And, you know, again, leadership is being able, if you take that operative environment, saying, okay, this is the case we're going to do today. This is the plan. This is how we're going to do it. But then working together as a team and giving different people the opportunity to lead at the right time is key. Probably why I also chose surgery is I love the, the team element of it. I mean, you know, now that you're talking about it, even if I look back at, you know, school, like I always chose team sports. I always chose, you know, I captained different teams, whether it was football or volleyball, but I loved team sports. It's about, you know, working together. I never sort of gravitated to, you know, single player sports. So that naturally is my, you know, behavior. And I think the operating environment is very much that as well. When was the first time you started thinking about, you know, becoming a doctor? I think I was about 13 uh, or 14. Um, I had some extended relatives who were doctors and, you know, we were um, at a family house and one of this, you know, the village uh, individual came into the house and asked for some help. They said, we really need a doctor. There's someone available. And, you know, I was, I think I was, yeah, 12 or 13. And I could see how my aunt was suddenly being identified as the person who was going to come help and solve this person's problem. And then she eventually did. And, you know, they're, they're like hazy memories. And then I started to think about the sort of um, this, the consequences of war, burns, trauma. Those things really upset me when I used to see children who couldn't walk properly because they had, you know, a burns injury or others. I think it's the summer when I was 14, my family introduced me to a plastic surgeon uh, who's Lebanese, uh, Dr. Kamil Abu Dahir, who was visiting from New York. And he used to spend his time in the summer going to some of these camps to help do some uh, pro bono reconstructive surgery to help these children. And so um, I said, please, can I go with you? And, and he took me. I still remember that day. He picked me up at 6 a.m. in his car and we drove down to Saida and we did this case together. I mean, I obviously observed, but he did this case. I was hooked. In that moment, I came home. I told my mom, I remember sitting in the living room with her saying, I'm going to become a reconstructive surgeon. And, and yeah, that's that's what I've done since then. <laughs> And, and as a child, the sight of blood or, or the whole cutting and, screw, you know, stitching and all of that didn't bother you at all? I was mesmerized. I just wow. thought how amazing that this surgery is going to help this girl walk. And by the end of it, you know, she was walk, you know, she could walk, you know, a few weeks later, obviously he examined her and, you know, things went well. And I, you know, that ability to restore form and function and give people a second chance for even something that might give them purpose, something as simple as being able to walk more straight um, was just just like a revelation for me. And how did your family uh, take it when you told them you wanted to be a surgeon? I mean, the best thing is, you know, I think my mom being a teacher, my dad being an engineer, I mean, they were always very keen on us following what we were really excited about. And I, and I think a lot of that, you know, also having grown up in the region, you know, my parents were very much about, you know, education and do what really excites you and is, yeah. is going to sort of give you that purpose. 
And so they were very supportive from day one. So you went into uh, university in Beirut? Yeah, so I started pre-med at AUB, uh, which, you know, has a very special place in my heart. One of the fantastic universities of the world, I think. And then uh, transferred to the U.S., finished my pre-med, uh, and then I met my husband, and we decided to settle in London. So I moved to London uh, and studied medicine here. So you're a doctor and you married early. So your yes. parents must have been really <laughs> parents must have been really pl- proud by Lebanese standards. This is uh, phenomenal. I think they were just uh, they loved my husband, so they were very happy when uh, wow. we decided to do that. Yeah. So your husband was never intimidated by what you do. He was fully supportive. My husband is really, you know, my rock. I mean, really, when I think about everything I've tried to achieve, and you know, it, it goes from one mission to another. Whether it was surgery, whether it's proxy, he's always stood by me, and you know really been a partner with me to try and help me achieve all of that. I think also he grew up in a family that very much valued education and very much valued purpose. Uh, his sister was a doctor as well. And so he really, uh, you know, and all his sisters work. So he he also understood the the value and the importance of hard work and purpose. And that that's an important role, you know, as role models for our children is really important as well to show them that, you know, anyone can do what they put their mind to. everything that's happening been happening in Lebanon recently I mean I don't think there's anybody who's Lebanese that's not talking about that being an expat uh, being in the UK at this point in time like how do you feel as a Lebanese uh, at the moment with with what's been happening it's it's obviously very tragic what's happening and I don't know anyone who hasn't been moved by it in some shape or form Lebanese or others I think the whole world has literally been brought to its knees just watching what's happening I think if you know you speak to most expats who live abroad there's an element of frustration guilt and wanting to help um, and so we're all doing different things um, you know I definitely don't want to advertise the things that you know I'm doing or other people are doing but definitely trying to help uh, where possible it's really needed a lot of times my friends and I would be would be having a discussion and feel helpless right like what what can you do? Maybe it's the little things, right? Like it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, a massive donation or, or some really big uh, grand gesture. And sometimes I wonder if we can ever go back, you know, and, uh, and settle as well. I think you're so right about the small, trying to do something small. It can be so overwhelming sometimes. It's just there's so many problems. You're kind of thinking, what can I do as a single person to try and solve that? But I think even if you do one thing, if every single person does one or two things, that's still meaningful. And so, the, of course, there's elements of, of donations and a lot of things that we're seeing online and some phenomenal campaigns that are happening. Yes. But I, I started to think about, you know, on a personal level, not just me, but also as a team and as a company, you know, what we stand for is surgery and, and reconstructive surgery is my own area of expertise. You know, what what can... What can I do that's going to help connect all the Proximy team around the world around this particular um, issue? So we decided to actually identify perhaps a specific case, a specific patient, because everything about Proximy is about a patient. And um, it's kind of sometimes um, you think back, you know, how how everything falls sometimes in a certain way as if it's been pre-planned. The first case of Proximy was a case of a blast injury to the hand. It was the first case that was covered by CNN and you know the whole world. And you know, out of the blue, one of the surgeons reaches out to me, a good friend of mine um, who's a fantastic plastic surgeon at AUB, and says, "We have a young man who has a blast injury to his hand wow. and needs reconstruction." 
uh, we need to find some money. We need to help kind of fund this. And I just, I, 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 I didn't even think. I was like, absolutely, I'll cover it. We'll cover it. And um, it's amazing how it's rallied the whole team around one thing. It's a small, tangible thing, but it's going to change this guy's life, hopefully. And I think sometimes we need those stories to help keep us feel that there's hope and there's opportunity. Because sometimes when you donate into these big buckets, you don't know where that's don't know going. Where it's going. Absolutely, especially in Lebanon. Unfortunately, I mean, yes. it's a it's a big thing where where people are asking, are begging foreign governments, you know, not to support our uh, our yeah. politicians. So this is uh, this is really important. I think sometimes we we don't think about it and and we live our lives. But I'm sure there's some sort of trauma that you know that's left in you from this experience. Like for me, it's normal. But then I think about it that if that were to happen and I have kids you know and we have to live in uh, in a place where there's war i mean this is this is not normal um but you kind of internalize it somehow and you think okay like you know we continue with our lives i think i was i must have been around seven or or eight years old it's very young and uh you know on on one very cold night no electricity uh as usual in lebanon And uh, and my father was carrying a pot of hot water so that I can take a shower. I was running around in the house and then I bumped into him. And then here I was, you know, a, whole, a full pot of hot water uh, goes on my face, on my arms and so on. And and obviously, you know, around that time, like we didn't have Google, like my parents didn't know where to go. Obviously, it's not like today you have your phone and you can call somebody. And anyway, it's war and forget getting an ambulance. Uh, you know, I wasn't really cared for properly. I didn't have a proper, you know, access to great uh, healthcare. And probably most of the people that need reconstructive surgery uh, come from places where there's war and where they don't have access to that. You know, the physical scar is still there. Um, it it is healed, but but there are emotional scars that are left. So I'm really sorry you had to experience that. And you know, you're you're not alone. Nadine and I discussed the invisible scars and the need for mental health to accompany the healing process of physical scars. Unfortunately, the battle for overcoming mental health issues is still in its infancy globally. On a positive note, Nadine is making strides in healing physical scars through her company Proximy. As she traveled the world working on global health initiatives and with device manufacturers to push innovation in surgery, She started to realize there was a new problem that needed to be solved. Ultimately, I'm a bottleneck. You know, it's all going to rely on actually my ability to get to one place or another. And, you know, is that really how healthcare is going to scale? And as I started to look around the world, you know, the Lancet Commission published that 5 billion people lack access to safe surgery. You know, I started to think, you know, have I achieved any, have I actually made any scratch of a difference in this global challenge? And then I started to dig deeper into the evidence and the research, and I recognized that actually it's not just an issue around global health. There is a massive amount of variation in care even here. You know, if you walk into one hospital, you'll have a different experience than another. You know, this is really a, a big problem in surgery, and how are we going to solve this? It's about how can I multiply myself to be in many other places, and how can other brilliant surgeons multiply themselves? And that's when I started to look at technology. I mean. Probably innately, I was a gamer as a kid. I loved video games. My dad was a computer engineer. So that was just a comfortable you know, place to look to. Just prerequisites. I was kind of like, okay, you know, um, I looked at technology and see, but, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, wasn't looking to set up a company. I was looking to solve this problem. 
discussed with some engineers how we can do it, and we started to you know test out some prototypes. And it was really only until 2016 um, when we got asked to help in a case in Gaza. Um, and really, this became covered by CNN as sort of the future of surgery. I thought, okay, this this is really something that is actually is so actually. There was no actually, at the time. No. Okay. So it was initially I wanted to solve a problem. I, I started to look around the world where we could try and test this out to see if it was va- valid, feasible, and valuable ultimately. And if it is fantastic, then we can dig deeper into the technology and how sophisticated it is. So that was the initial uh, journey, and we we put it in Peru for a year in a town in a small town called Trujillo, and we were helping them train cleft uh, cleft lip surgeons. And after a year, it was phenomenal. Like we were able to increase her skills, we were able to treat more patients, we were able to train other doctors in the environment as well, and and that started to make me think this this is really kind of helping people. Um, my my hypothesis is actually proving itself, and we need to continue doing this. Just to be clear to the listeners who haven't heard about Proximy, so can you just let us uh, tell us how it works? Sure. So the idea behind Proximy is that we wanted to build a software that would allow surgeons all around the world to collaborate in real time. So that simply by using your phone or computer or tablet, you could virtually reach into any operating room and hopefully help ensure that patients get the best care that they need. So instead of you having to travel around the world and do all of these operations in person, you can use the software that you've built to help another doctor in, in some remote area, right? Or, or anywhere, really, operate on someone. Correct. So the idea behind it was that there's so much surgical knowledge around the world. What if we could grab all that knowledge into one platform and allow doctors to share their experiences in the operating room before the operating room and after the operating room. And think about, you know, if you think about surgical coaching, surgical mentorship, it's like athletics, it's like sports. When you think about, you know, the pursuit for excellence, it's about learning from your coaches and driving that excellence. Is that something though that could work only in places where you have like very solid internet? I mean, that's like life or death, right? So if, you know, if something wrong happens, that's that's a huge responsibility. It's a, it's a really important point. And actually, that's one of the major um, you know, positive things in our technology. We built the technology to work on very low bandwidth. So you can literally off a hotspot, off a phone, the technology will work. And that was really important for me, not less because remote areas may not have good internet, but even in our own environments in the West, there are challenges around connectivity. And then who pushed you? Who told you, like, Nadine... You know, you should you should commercialize this. You should, you can you know you should make it into a business. Let's let's invest in it. Let's grow it. Honestly, my husband and I sat and talked uh, a lot about you know how do you you know not because it's about kind of commercializing for profit, but thinking about if this is really adding value and it's going to help patients. How do we make sure it's sustainable? How do we make sure that we can build this out to be able to act, you know everyone can access it and ultimately help as many patients around the world? And so we started to think through you know, mechanisms that would, one, allow us to, you know, commercialize it and kind of think through that, Um, but also hopefully then through that, be able to do other initiatives to help in global health as well. That's nice. So he was your first cheerleader, supporter, investor? Yes. Yes. Okay. (laughs) That's, that's great. And then, but how did you find the time? Like, did that come, you know, did that cross your mind? Like, how am I going to do this? I mean, you're, you're a mom of three, you're a surgeon, and then you say, okay, let me let me put more strain on myself. 
I'm never one to shy away from another challenge. I'll say that. Uh, and I don't say it in a in an arrogant way, but but people who know me will say, like, if Nadine puts her mind to something, um, she will do it. Um, look, I mean, I think when you really believe in something and it's just, you know, truly, truly, I, you know, when I think about the, you know, every story, every patient we've impacted has really touched me personally. And so when I'm really driven to do something because I know the good it's going to have for my community and for the world, then you'll find the time, you know, you, I, it's not easy by any stretch, you know, multitasking with three kids, um, surgical career, and this is tough, but I think definitely the initial desire to make that difference, that innate, you know, the thing we talk about, you're, yeah. you're influenced by something and it drives you to want to do that, definitely was a big player. But I think, of course, um, I have to give credit to the team I've worked with. I mean, they've all been instrumental to the success we've had so far. I, I'm asking you this because I want to make it clear to people that are contemplating entrepreneurship or scared of entrepreneurship that, you know, A, it's doable, B, it's it's a lot of work. It's not all glamorous. It's not all linear. Yes. Uh, and there's lots of ups and downs. You're phenomenal. Like you're doing so many things, plus you're a certain surgeon. I mean, that's, that's probably such a stressful uh, job to have, I assume. Uh, you, so you probably walk into your house in the evening and you're like... Throw yourself on the couch, right? And say, you know, what a day. It happens, yeah. No, definitely happens. I, you know, for the entrepreneurs out there, I'll say two things. Definitely not easy, but very doable. Every day brings its excitements as well. Like Absolutely. little wins, small wins that just push you and excite you. The one, you know, the story of the patient or some great feedback a surgeon gives you or a great post. I mean, sometimes it's just the little things that give you that kind of enthusiasm and remind you that what you're doing continues to have purpose, it's important. And so those are the things. And even internally, like a day an employee is really happy or excited because they achieved something. I mean, their wins are my wins and my wins are their wins. And I think building that is really important. I mean, we do this thing internally on a weekly basis. You know, we have a, a team huddle you know, every, every Monday. And the first 10 minutes is always a mission vision story. So someone has to stand up and share a story of the week uh, that aligns with what, why we're doing what we're doing. Because when you we start remind the week, everybody. we remind everyone. So when we start the week with that story, then all the pains that may come, uh, you know, become less insurmountable. What's the most rewarding part of the job? Many things, of course, but I think that probably the two or three things, you know, internally, I think it's seeing people thrive in our environment and being independent and, you know, driving their own, you know, being able to take decisions and do that is, is fantastic. It means I've, I've hopefully done a decent job at empowering them to, to do that. So from a leadership point of view, I think that's really important. And I think on the outside, it's, it's the recognition that, you know, what Proximy is trying to do is really, it's good. It's not about a commercial business or, you know, trying to just thrive from that point of view. It's about actually changing people's lives. And like, I still remember they interviewed a patient about a few weeks ago, on on um, on Sky News, asking him about his experience, and and they had it was him, and they had his two surgeons next to him on this on this big screen, and I remember crying watching that, and he was talking about how he had this life saving operation because he had really bad testicular cancer that had spread everywhere, and I remember crying, and my kids were sitting next to me as we were watching the interview, and I said, you know, if I died tomorrow, I'd die a happy person because I was able to make that difference, and I think everyone feels that at the in the team. 
Proximy isn't that many years old. We've, we really only brought the product a few years ago and we really only came to market in 20, 2018, 2019. And we've already seen a huge growth in desire to use it, benefit to patients, benefit to carbon footprint, benefit to health systems. Just even seeing that, you know, moving from 10 cases a month to, you know, over 700 cases, I, I have hope. I can see things moving in the right direction and the right trajectory. And that gives me purpose and, and further meaning to keep doing what I'm doing. How, how far do you think the, the, you know, the technology can go? Uh, I mean, if, if you had to think, I don't know, five or 10 years down the line, you know, you hear a lot these days about artificial intelligence and like some professions are going to become obsolete and, and all of that stuff. I mean, how, how far do you think the technology will go? I think the technology is still in its very early stages. I think the, the future is, is unlimited, really. And what we're seeing, at least in our experience, is by building Proxima the way it's been built, we're able to layer the most advanced technologies as they come and become more mature. So when we started, it was all about how do we build a very strong uh, real-time connectivity platform. And then augmented reality, we, we plugged that in, and that added a huge value to that interaction. Now we've already added artificial intelligence into our platform, where we're starting to leverage data from the operating room to help surgeons and help health systems. And as these technologies evolve, we're going to bring more and more things into that. And that's also why I wanted to build the platform the way it was. I wanted it to be hardware agnostic, so it could work cross-cloud, cross-platform, and give that scale, that that immense scale and the ability to, in a modular way, layer in different technologies as they become more mature. I think when it comes to data, we're still at the very early stages of the value of data. I will go back to say, though, ultimately, every bit of technology that we bring in has to deliver value. I almost, you know, value-based products, value-based function, it has to be value-based. I think the opportunities are really uh, you know, endless. And the data, you use the data because what? Because potentially these operations can be, what, automated? Or like why, like where, where does the artificial intelligence uh, come in? So, the, so if you imagine an operating room, there's a lot of data in that operating room, whether it's around the operation and everything that's going on around it as well. And without going into too much detail, there's a lot of components of data where you can extract data and then deliver some valuable inputs to the operating team that's going to help benefit the patient. I would say, um, and I've been asked this question quite a lot, do you think robots will replace surgeons? Mm. I don't think these technologies will ever, ever fully replace clinicians. I think there will be components or times within a, a surgical journey, a patient's surgical journey, where data yeah. and these solutions will be valuable. And actually, we often, I often talk about AI-assisted surgery or robotics-assisted surgery because it's a combination of the human element and the device element and the interface of the human computer or human technology interface, the human robot interface, is where we're still learning. It's still very early on. But I don't envisage a future where it'll just be robots and devices. You know, I think people sometimes gives the uh, the analogy that, you know, if you have a, a plane, you're usually on, on autopilot most of the journey, right? But I think... You know, if you're gonna crash land, you want that pilot to be there. Uh, and I and I don't know if as a an, if as an individual, I would trust like a fully automated uh, surgery. Anyway, I think we're a long way. We're a long way from that. We're a long way, and also I think we mustn't underestimate the value of the the human interaction, the empathy, the relationship, the feeling that there's a human that cares about 
your your surgical journey. You know, what about you, gut? Gut as well and decision making. You know, I think it's there be elements you can automate. There are elements that have to be, uh, you know, we'll still need that human component. And so my stance is um, we will never be fully replaced yeah. uh, by those devices. But definitely there'll be a new human uh, device interface. So like a like a hybrid almost hybrid model. And what are what are you in general excited about? Uh, you know, for the future, uh, whether it's in medicine or whether it's in business. I think it's just really exciting to see what this new world is going to look like. You know, the the con, con you know COVID has just been a really you know awful time uh, for so many people around the world. But it'll be interesting to see what this new world is going to look like, what the new working life is going to be, what our children's future may look like, what healthcare may look like. There's arguments, you know, for both sides. I mean, some people say yes, there's a new normal, and some people say people forget and we'll we'll soon be back into uh, to our old habits. Well, that's I think that's the bit I'm most excited to see how it how it plays out. So uh, I think we'll be probably somewhere in between. I don't think we'll go back. We won't resort completely to old habits. I think this has shown us or opened up our eyes to, you know, even just take a very simple example of working from home. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that actually it is doable, feasible meetings, you don't have to fly over to do meetings. That in and of itself, I think, won't change. It won't go back to the way it was. Um, yeah. It's here it's to stay for now. Turn people's lives uh, upside down, though. <laughs> yeah, they're adapting. Especially, especially parents. Yes, uh, but hopefully they'll adapt to it and we'll end up at some hybrid where they'll go into the office a few days a week, but largely perhaps we'll work mostly from home. And maybe that gives a better balance of quality, quality of life. Nadine's journey is incredibly inspiring. She's a successful surgeon, an entrepreneur, and a mother of three. At some point, I used to believe that motherhood and career didn't really go hand in hand. But becoming a mother myself has taught me that striking a balance is doable. And the trick is to really be okay with the decisions you make on that front. There are a lot of stereotypes and biases that we need to try and sort of banish. And that's part of that is by the way. most of them, absolutely, definitely. And I think that's why that kind of grassroots or earlier um, awareness and education is really important. So you know, even with my daughter, I mean, she's 13 now, you know, from a very early age, you know, exposing her and showing her that everything and anything she wants to do is possible. Hopefully, of course, her seeing me at home trying to do all these different things and you know, succeeding at some things and failing at others. I think it's important that people also recognize you can fail and, you know, you pick yourself up and you get going um, is really important. And, you know, I, I think as, as much as possible, we should try and get into schools and try and raise that awareness. But I think also there is an element of sharing by example or, or de- you know, demonstrating by example. And that's usually been my mantra in life anyway. Like, don't say you're going to do something, do it. Do it. And then show others the, the benefit or the, the potential. And so even within my team, like I never ask any member of the team to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. And so trying to, to see what it's like and experience all of the ups and downs through that is really important. How do your kids feel about their mom, you know, doing all that and being busy and, and all of that? It depends what day you ask them. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I've been, uh, you know, very lucky to have such brilliant kids. I mean, they're just... They're, they're amazing. They're so supportive. Um, they're independent. They're confident, young, you know, at least the two older ones, you know, teenagers um, that are proud. You know, they're proud and they, you know, I hope that this is exciting them to show. Of course, nothing comes for free. And, and of course, you know, at, at the cost sometimes of spending some time with them, 
you know, you're constantly trying to reprioritize your week and your day. Um, and so there, you know, I'm sure we'll, I'll look back and remember that I missed a sports day or a parents meeting or one of those events. And I think I don't want to sit here and say it's all, you know, I've, I'm attending everything for parents days and everything. You know, I want the listeners to understand that there's, you know, sometimes you have to compromise. And so but we do that together as a family. You know, we sit down. I remember when they were younger, we used to sit down and look at the annual calendar for school and I say, okay, I can attend seven events. Let's pick what are the most seven most important things yeah. that you, you think are important to you that you want me to come to. And of course, my husband and I juggle and share as well. Uh, but I hope that, that they've grown to be, you know, independent uh, young individuals with opinions and, uh, you know, can, can speak confidently to that. By the way, I hate to ask this question for to a woman because we never ask this question to a man, but... But I'm just curious to know, because like this is something I'm personally struggling with. I'm sure a lot of women struggle with. I mean, you had a lot of women working from home now, a lot of women during COVID uh, that are available to their kids. And then all of a sudden now people are going back to work. So you have kids being very sensitive and so on. So, you know, is there something that you tell yourself or like, how do you how do you say, OK, no, this is OK? So um, when I had my son um, and it was very early on, you know, I was I had just, you know, a few years into my marriage, I was in London. You know, London was all new as well. And I was studying. I was a medical student at the time and trying to juggle uh, lots of different things. And I remember speaking to my mom about, you know, guilt. And I said, you know, I don't know how to cope with guilt. And, you know, how am I going to get through this with, you know, if I'm constantly feeling guilty? My mom um, was a teacher, but also studied child psychology. Uh, and yeah. she she had quite, we had quite a long conversation. I still remember at the time. And she said, it's really important that you never feel guilty because, or at least try not to feel guilty because one, it's your job to be a role model for your children. Two, children pick up on that feeling of guilt and that's not good for you or for them from a relationship point of view and the dynamics of the relationship. And three, you need to keep reminding yourself that you're trying your best. And I think as long as you're honest about that, your kids, as little as they are and as young as they are, they get a, they feel it. They get a feeling that, you know, you are trying your best, you're working hard and, and you should just stay true to that. And it's, it's probably easier said than done. I don't want to, you know, over uh, glorify uh, the experience. It's still hard, but I remember those words. And I have to say, I give that advice to my friends. Like you just can't feel guilty um, and your kids will respect you for it. And I think so far uh, that has worked. But I'm sure you've given them like a, you know, a good set of values, um, to go out and uh, navigate the world, right? Is there something that's really important to you that you kind of passed on to them? Yeah, I think it's about quality over quantity. And I know it's a cliche, but it really, really is. One of the, the best feedbacks I got was my son went once to an interview and it's been said about my daughter now as well, um, which I think goes back true to the kind of values that we're trying to instill in them. Um, here in, in school, they have to get interviewed at the age of like 10 and 11 to get into sort of the next school. And so my son went in for an interview and the teacher calls me after and he says, I'm so impressed at the level of empathy that he has. And, um, you know, for, for someone of his age to be, just be so emotionally mature is something really uh, we don't see, you know, we don't see a lot of at that age. And they, we get the same feedback now about my daughter as well. And I think we spend a lot of time talking to them, perhaps being a bit more real with them about the world and about some of the inequalities in the world some of the 
stereotypes, the biases and the challenges of growing up in this new world, which it's not easy, you know, if you think about the future that our children might have. You know, sometimes when I go to Lebanon and uh, and uh, I talk to girls there that are young, you know, that are still at university and then uh, want to graduate and then you ask them what they want to do. And obviously, you know, career sometimes is not a very big thing. And I get, you know, so frustrated and I try to explain to them that it's so important, like to be financially independent as a woman, to have your own, uh, you know, your own business or your own career and uh, and so on. And I hope one day we'll, uh, we'll get there. Maybe when people see, you know, when women, girls, little girls see people like you, um, you know, achieving great things and doing great things, maybe they'll feel like, you know, I can do it also. I mean, she was Lebanese. She went to London. She did this on her own. Well, Going you're a great role model uh, too, Lulu. Well, thank you. Now I want to ask you more about Lebanon. What is it about the culture that you love the most other than Lebni? Other than Lebni. I mean, it's, I think it's a few things and it's it's quite common that people recognize this about Lebanese. I think one that just that warmth, that hospitality, you, you could walk into anyone's home, never know them and just feel welcome and that you belong and and, and I don't think that's just true to a Lebanese walking into the house. You could be a foreigner walking into someone's home and they make you feel welcome. And so I think that warmth and that welcomeness is really important, that feeling of home. And I think the the, the joie de vivre, the kind of we're going to keep going, we're going to keep doing, and we're going to live every day like it could be our last day. I think that's a bit tricky, though. I mean, we've been called the the, the phoenix, right? Uh, so we are uh, we're this population that keeps rising like a phoenix, and then say, okay, we're going to go through it and keep going. But ultimately, the situation is deteriorating so much, right? Like, how do you? I'm not. I think the people need hope. Phoenix. I yeah. think people need hope, and so hopefully, you know, by looking to what we as a as a group have achieved around the world. Um, you know, so many amazing and brilliant Lebanese scientists and business people and, you know, business makers, um, that gives you hope. And that's all we have, unfortunately, in our hands today is hope. I, I like to ask us to, to Lebanese people, uh, tabbouleh or fatouche? Tabbouleh. Okay. Why? I take a lot of joy and pleasure in preparing it. Uh, yeah. And Oh, you do um, prepare it? You cook? Yes, yes, oh, I do. Wow. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, and uh, it reminds me of my uh, my grandmother, who played a very influential role in my life. Um, and she's not with us anymore, but uh, it definitely reminds me of her. I wear her necklace, so I, I remember her every day. Yeah, grandmothers have a have a special uh, special role in Lebanese families as well. Yes, they can bring them together or tear them apart. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, ours brought us together. It was a great pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, guys. It's always inspiring to meet women on a mission to create impact. And I truly believe that women like Nadine are paving the way for millions of other women to break barriers and venture out on their own, unencumbered by society or by naysayers. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I hope you felt inspired. Special thanks to Noura Sadaka, who worked with our team as a creative consultant for this episode and an embodiment coach. I'd love to get your feedback. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on IMDb and reach out to me directly on Instagram at Lulu Hazen. For collaborations, partnerships, or guest recommendations, drop me an email at lulu.hazen at gmail.com. 
I'll see you guys in two weeks. Are you struggling to find the right broker to take advantage of opportunities in the market? Are you looking to trade commodities, shares, or even crypto? Even if you don't know much about trading, you can learn all about it by visiting Capital.com's website. That's C-A-P-I-T-A-L.com. Capital.com is a global trading platform with over half a million users. Visit Capital.com and start your trading journey today.